It's the podcast where we talk about the dating shows. Except this September, where we pivoted to the Flintstones. Prehistoric attitudes and scenes, just like we are used to on our screens. This month on the podcast, it's the Abadabadoo time. We're doing this now. I'm sorry to the subscribers. Hello, and welcome to Batch Boulder of Hearts presents Extra Craggit, the Batch Boulder Rockstralia podcast that asks ye old questions. Still, we can still do that. Max is upset with me. <laughs> keep going, keep going. Okay, ask ye old question. Oh, yeah, that's my bit. Uh-huh. Yeah, um, what, what do you... Wait, wait, no, I fucked it up already. What yabba dabba do you yabba dabba do with an arts degree? I'm still not sure I know. It's <laughs> really good. Uh, we were behind the uh, behind the curtain. We can reveal this. We were like, well, we should start with yabba dabba do, right? But Max was like, no, 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 we're going to wait a second. And I'm glad we did. It was worth it, I think. Uh, my name, by the way, is Xavier Rockbetsky Noonan. And I <laughs> love the Flintstones and I hate the Coronasaurus. <laughs> Joining me as always is my cave host, mm. Max Quinstone. Hi, Max. How are you going? <laughs> uh, it was right there. It was really good. No, I'm great. Uh, I am really excited that we have made this pivot into mm-hmm. the land of um, the land before time. That's what we've watched. Right. Uh, yes, here. I'm really <laughs> excited to talk about everything um, to do with. The Flintstones, as it relates and, to uh, yeah, oh yes, yeah, okay, good, good, yes, we are as, doing as it relates to love. Um, uh, what else? What else are we? Did we? Why are we doing this? Uh, a great question that will reveal. Uh, hopefully, the answer will come to us at some point over the next. Yes, uh, yeah, it does seem like something that we'll have to uh, reckon with. discover along the way. Yeah, because I can't remember. Is the short, long and short of it? <laughs> uh, it sort of came up, and now we're doing it. I was at a yeah. bar. With some friends, uh, maybe a week ago or whatever, and uh, it was, I, w- I had spent that day working. It was like I was catching up, and they were like, "What have you been up to today?" I was like, oh, "I've been doing the theme song for our Flintstones uh, month themed episode of my Bachelor <laughs> podcast." And they went, "I have a series of follow up questions," <laughs> um, and I wasn't really equipped to answer them. Um, but yeah, I'm hoping that <laughs> you know we will we will sort of dig these things up like fossils of truth as we proceed with this episode. Um, yeah. But firstly, I would like to acknowledge that today we are recording on the land of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation and pay our respects to the traditional owners and custodians of this land. We acknowledge that sovereignty of this land was never ceded and that it always was and always will be Aboriginal land. Um, it is very weird to talk about this uh, property, this intellectual property, which takes place long before like European settlers came to, you know, it, it feels like yeah. it, there's like, it, of, essentially, if we are to boil down the joke of the Flintstones, it's like, what if there were dumb, modern, white Americans who existed long before, you know, who who were in this world. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. It feels yeah. like, let's not dig too deep into In that. the Stone Age. Right. Exactly. Um, yes. Okay. So, as I'm sure you are all aware, September 22 is, of course, Flintstones Month on the Bachelor of Hearts <laughs> podcast. And today we are kicking things off with an episode about the 1994 live action big screen adaptation of the classic cartoon. 
directed by Brian Levant, who was already known for helming Problem Child 2 and 1992's Beethoven. Great uh, movies. Yeah. Have you seen either of those? I've seen Beethoven. Hell yeah. Um, putting it on the list. Uh, I've seen Beethoven 2 and I love it. Um, uh, I haven't seen Beethoven 2. Oh no, is it called Beethoven 2 or Beethoven 2nd? Beethoven 2nd is yeah. what it is. I've Which is one of the best the like sequel titles in history. Really smart. Really, really good. Uh, uh, Levant would go on to direct Jingle All the Way, Snow Dogs, Are We There Yet? And a couple of live action Scooby-Doo movies, but not the ones you're probably thinking of. Yeah, not the one that was filmed uh, in Tangaluma. Is that right? Yeah. Did you know that? No. In fact, I'm not even really 100% certain what Tangaluma is. Tangaluma is an island off the coast of Queensland um, uh-huh. where they have lots of dolphins. Ah. Uh-huh. Yeah, it's like a dolphin island. And the resort there was once used uh, as part of the set for Scooby-Doo the movie. Wow, that's awesome. Night of the Haunted House or something? I think the first one has no subtitle and the second one is called Monsters Unleashed. That one. Yeah, right. Okay, yeah. Uh, we are not here talking about Scooby-Doo, although that month may come. <laughs> yeah. <well. laughs> Who knows? Uh, but yes, this, uh, this, this movie uh, has an all-star cast. It was a box office smash hit. Um, but in this day and age, I think it stands as a curious relic from an era just before Hollywood's current obsession with live-action remakes and tentpole blockbusters exclusively based on existing intellectual property. You know, I feel like culturally speaking, there is there, there is a, a period in time that's being preserved here that isn't just the uh, the prehistoric uh, Stone Age time. You yeah, know this mean? is really true, right? Like this is um, a seed maybe for what will will come in the future when we're looking at things like the million Marvels that, that exist mm-hmm. and all of the Star Warses and all of the things that we just want to remake in the year 2022, mm-hmm. this, like, as a live action property, mm. as a version of a, a 1960s cartoon, I don't know, I kind of love. Yeah, so w- let's let's do initial reactions, right? And we'll, we'll obviously talk in a much more uh, detailed way about this as we proceed with the episode. But, like, yeah, I thought this was really good. <laughs> this movie rocks. Yeah, <laughs> this movie does rock. Thank you, Max. Uh, Yeah, I watched it uh, two and a half times this week. Uh, Mm. I did not get through my third viewing with commentary, uh, (laughs) unfortunately, Uh, because I went this morning. It it was much too late, but this morning I went to the shop and uh, was like, oh, yeah, I wonder if... (laughs) I wonder if this is kicking around. Uh, and I did manage to secure my copy of the Flintstones on DVD. Um, a DVD which was made in 1999. Um, and it's still on the shelves now for the low price of $5 at my local DVD retailer. Incredible. Um, it, it's kind of fascinating that like there's a director's commentary on here where the director, Brian Levant, is talking about like if we ever get to make another one. Which obviously did happen quite a long time ago now. But, um, yeah. you know, again, we're just preserved in time a little bit. And phenomenal that, like, so was he involved with the making of the second one? Yeah. So we're going to talk about the second one in our next episode. Um, he directed the second one as well. Okay. But if for those of you who may not be familiar, which I... With Flintstone's law. I can't imagine there's anyone listening in that category. <laughs> but the second film features, I think, none of the same cast. Or That's correct. Maybe, like, very, very minimal overlap. 
Um, so yeah, it's very interesting. The same director, but um, yeah, we'll, we will have to get into that because I haven't watched that one yet. I don't know about you. No, me neither. Yeah, so we're we're clean. We're we're a clean slate, as it will. Hmm. Mm, hmm? Really good. Let's talk about some of the characters in this movie. Um, yes. And some of the people who play the characters in this movie, oh, because for that sure. for me was like this cast is really strong. Absolutely. Yeah. Can I actually, before we even get into that, can we just talk super briefly about the Flintstones in general? Absolutely. I, I mean, I can't imagine there's that many people who don't like know about it, but... Who's like, what's a Flintstone? Yeah, but I just have some background info that may be relevant or may be interesting to some people. Um, the Flintstones cartoon ran from 1960 to 1966 on ABC, which is the same network behind The Bachelor... <laughs> So, wow. You know, uh, the parallels are endless. Right, right. And it was the first ever animated series to hold a primetime slot on television. Um, so it basically airs like when The Bachelor airs now. You know what I mean? Like, Yeah. Um, so it's kind of this bizarre. Is appointment viewing. Right. And these are back in the days when there's probably like three channels on TV or whatever. So yeah. like this was immensely popular and uh, just a, a pop cultural like mainstay that I think that has allowed it to just survive forever. You know, like yeah, it yeah. it feels ubiquitous. It feels like I've I've never lived in a world where the Flintstones didn't exist, and it's hard to imagine there ever will be one again. You know, like yeah, I like even the way that the catchphrases permeate to this day. Like obviously yabba dabba do, but also like will you accept this boulder? <laughs> you know, really yeah. like yes, absolutely things that you hear people say all the time. Uh, the series, created by William Hanna and Joseph Barbera, uh, centers around the Flintstones, who are in many ways sort of a modern Stone Age family. Um, the family are t from the town of Bedrock, and in my personal opinion, they are sort of a page right out of history. Uh, uh, look, yeah, I don't know. It's the Flintstones. D did you... I want to know about your history with the Flintstones. Did you like the Flintstones growing up? Do you like the Flintstones now? Uh, where do you stand on rocks? The Flintstones have been part of my family for a really long time. <laughs> Wait, like by marriage or what? Well, so my granddad, so his name's Tom Gifford, mm -hmm. and uh, he, his nickname growing up was Barney Rubble. Right, okay. Not only was he a uh, shorter man mm -hmm. with um, like a more stout build and blonde hair. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He also was like a uh, real, like, hands-on tools construction worker uh, down at the wharves. Right. And so he was Barney Rubble, and that made my nan, Shirley, uh, Betty Rubble. Right. Okay. Yeah. So, so Barney and Betty were, like, This is great. Big, yeah, like, uh, in, in my family for a really long time. So, like you, mm. there's not a time where I have not felt some sort of cosmic attachment to the Flintstones. But mm. it's really interesting. Something that I've found myself pondering this week is, like, I have no idea who my granddad's Fred Flintstone was. Right, yeah, because obviously you can't really have a Barney in a vacuum, right? That's right, yeah. yeah. I like, wonder. Is your Barney's... granddad still with us? Is there any chance? No, no, he died in like 2005. Oh, okay. um, well, at least you got to see both the movies. Yeah, you know, yeah, it's, that. that's the main thing. Yeah, <laughs> I think that, that they went to see Titanic and then they went to see Flintstones in Viva Rock Vegas and yeah. I think that was it. Yeah, well, them. that's all you yeah. need, really. That's a balanced media yeah. diet. Yeah, the last two, the last two movies that you saw. Um, yeah, look, uh, I have have lived with the Flintstones for such a long time that this and and I've seen this movie before. Mm. Childhood, growing up, this was like it felt like it was on every Friday at six thirty on it's, Channel Ten. It seems like it's a big TV movie. Um, mm -hmm. It's a real like 
crowd pleaser mainstay you can kind of put it on any time of day or night and it will play to basically any audience about as well um yeah there's a timeless quality to this because it's set in in the stone age it's really bizarre yeah like that yeah it funnily enough has not aged very badly um and we'll talk a bit about like some of the production choices that have enabled it to uh have pretty long legs um but yeah, I I, I um, similarly was thinking about my relationship to the fran- to the to the franchise. I guess we can't really call it a franchise, but you know, to the Flintstones as, as a wider sort of property. I don't mm. know for sure, confidently, that I could say that I have ever watched any episodes of the Flintstones. But but I Me am neither. so culturally aware of it, and I know like the game of every episode. You know, it's like sort of based yep. on the Honeymooners, like this sort of very old style like. Um, sort of sitcom premise, uh, and obviously you've got the the little game of like all of the appliances and tools and stuff are actually like a little guy, and you know, like I'm very aware of everything that happens in it, but I'm like I want I can't couldn't tell you the plot of any episodes in particular, really. No, but I too have seen this movie um, as well as the three times or whatever that I watched this week, I've seen it a couple of times in my youth. And like, it feels like such a good summation of what the Flintstones is as an idea, yeah. you know? Yeah. It really feels still familiar to mm. me. That was the other thing that was so surprising watching this back where I was like, I roughly know all of the beats of this movie, even though it has been such a long time since I've engaged with the Flintstones as a property. Yeah. Like everything that was happening, I was like, it like, it's, activating some core memory of being like on a bus in year five on the way to school camp or do you know what I mean? Like, oh yeah. Yeah. This like, is probably like a big wet weather just, movie for people. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Um, I also want to acknowledge another small part of the Flintstones legacy that I remember being obsessed over when I was a teenager, um, mm. which is this very infamous ad campaign that they ran in the 1960s. Um, I'm not sure if you're aware of this or the product no. that they're going to advertise here, but I'm going to share my screen. I'm going to show this to you. Mr. Flintstone. Greetings, Rocky, my boy. Pack of Winstons, please. Oh, you like them Winston cigarettes, huh, Mr. Flintstone? Mm, but of course, they really got something. You bet your life. Folks who really enjoy smoking know it's what's up front that counts. And that's where Winston steps out ahead of the crowd with their exclusive filter blend. Choice golden tobaccos, specially selected and specially processed for filter smoke. Hold it, hold it. <laughs> what you mean? What are you pitching Winston's at me for? You know I never smoke nothing else. Just practicing, Mr. Flintstone. Everybody knows that. Winston tastes good, like a cigarette should. Yeah. See you soon, Rocky. And there's there's dozens of these Flintstones commercials where they're advertising uh, Winston cigarettes. It's kind of it's pretty fascinating uh, when we're talking about things that have been left in the past. You know, that is like that's shocking <laughs> in so many ways. Bizarre. I was just having this conversation uh, with some friends last night about how cigarettes taste bad and have always tasted. Do you, do you know what I mean? Like, yeah, that even uh, as an advertising, like I have so many problems with this. Sure. But it's a, uh, it's a bizarre hook, though, to be like, it's actually tasting good. Because it's like, no, they're not. Like, you're going you're gonna to convince somebody that these are, like, magic cigarettes or whatever? Yeah, The yeah, reason uh, that anyone smokes is not because of the delicious flavor. No, no. Um, 
that's it's really that's throwing me for a loop. I mean, yeah, it's just uh, it's just another thing to bear in mind. It's not really a big part of the discussion um, around this movie, but um, yeah. Uh, well, so no one in the film, I believe, smokes cigarettes, which I think is quite oh, interesting there's one, there's to see. One big cigarette glamour shot right at the very start. Is there? I yeah, didn't yeah. Know that. There's a there's a big like um, the one of the villains of the film um, smokes a cigarette and then blows a dollar sign. Oh, like, that's smoke right. Smoke pattern. Mm-hmm. Um, we'll get into it. Yeah, I don't know. It's I. I just feel like, uh, you know, it's part of the aged, you know, nature of this thing. I guess. And we're yeah, talking, we're talking yeah. about the 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 aging on on this thing, the marbled uh, texture that it has, or whatever. Um, mm. The the Flintstones live action movie that we're talking about today was released twenty eight years after the series aired its last episode, and we are now recording this episode of our podcast twenty eight years after that. So that's pretty good, right? I did Get some out of here. did some math this week. I was like, actually, it makes sense for us to be doing this podcast, and it's embarrassing that nobody else did it all year. Yeah, exactly. You know, and I do want to say happy twenty eighth anniversary to the Flintstones movie, and right, happy fifty yeah. sixth anniversary to the Flintstones the series. That's right. Yeah. So it's like so. So now we're doing this episode twenty eight years ago. The film was released twenty eight years before that. The show was on the air, and of course, twenty eight years. Days. Bef- I was going to say, 28 years before that is, of course, when all of this stuff actually happened in real life. That's right. Yeah. Right. Good. Yeah. This is the events that the uh, the film and series are based upon. So um, Yes. And then 28 days later is, of course, a, a slightly <laughs> different thing. Uh, so let's talk about like the, the lead up to this thing. Because obviously we have this like humongously successful 1960s TV show. Uh, a bunch of years go by. 28, in fact. <laughs> Uh, and, uh, yeah, so the rights for a, uh, live action feature film version of the Flintstones were initially purchased in 1985, uh, by producers Keith Barish, uh, co-founder of the Planet Hollywood restaurant chain. Oh, wow. Um, and Joel Silver, who is a big Hollywood producer guy, he's the inspiration for Tom Cruise's character in Tropic Thunder. Um, right. Okay. You've seen it. Uh, Stephen E. D'Souza, who is the screenwriter of Die Hard, wrote an initial script, um, which was rejected. Um, and In 1987. Yeah, around there, yeah. And then uh, Mitch Markowitz, uh, the writer of Good Morning Vietnam, was hired. Um, according to Markowitz, his version was a riff on Steinbeck's The Grapes of Wrath, wherein Fred and Barney leave their town during a terrible depression and go looking for jobs. They wind up in trailer parks trying to keep their families together. And then (laughs) this quote, they exhibit moments of heroism and poignancy. (laughs) 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 I love anyone who has taken this so seriously as I think we are kind of doing on this podcast as well. Yeah, this is precisely my shit. Like, I love this. Absolutely. Uh, So that script was deemed too sentimental by then-director Richard Donner, who was attached to the project for a while. Richard Donner is the director of the Lethal Weapon films. He's the director of the original Superman. Um, And yeah, so the whole project was tabled um, because they could not not figure it out uh, until the rights were eventually purchased by Amblin Entertainment and Steven Spielberg. So, Steven Spielberg, um, or Steven, what is it? Steven Spielrock? Spielrock. Spielrock, yeah, which... It's phenomenal that his name is attached to this property, just by the way. Oh, of course, yeah. Well, I think, I honestly think, like, he is a big part of the reason why this thing is actually really effective. Um, Uh, Yeah. So, Spielberg had just... Uh, he had just worked with John Goodman on, on the movie Always, um, and he was determined to cast him as Fred. 
uh, and he wanted to hire Brian Levant due to his love of the series. Um, apparently, Brian Levant uh, is it Levant or Levant? I didn't. I couldn't, couldn't work tell that you. Out. Uh, he has like a big Flintstones collection at home, which I think is hilarious. So everything leading up to that point was tossed out, all the previous drafts of their script, and Levant recruited an all-star writing team, which comprised TV writers from places like Family Ties, Night Court, and Happy Days. Um, he dubbed this writing team the Flintstone Eight. Uh, and he conducted a series of roundtable writing sessions, each of which was attended by new writing talent. Um, and according to the director's commentary on the DVD, there were 33 writers in total across the life of the project, which is like... That's right, yeah. Far from standard. It is like, it's how you write TV, I guess. And sure, it's even a sure. lot of writers for a TV show, but it's like, he was like, we need this to be like a superstar sitcom writing team, you know? Sitcom is exactly the the phrase that comes to mind when I think about how this movie has survived for such a long time because it has all of those classic sitcom beats. Yes. Yeah. And I think um, that's part of the reason why the Flintstones cartoon works is because it is an animated version of a fairly, like, stock standard type of sitcom. Definitely. Um, but I think this movie like manages to contain all of those elements without just feeling like a long episode of a TV show. Like it is yeah. like, it has a sense of scale and weight to it, despite like almost every line in it being a joke of some kind, you know? Um, so executive producer, Steven Spielberg, he's attached to this thing. It's a year after the release of Jurassic Park when this movie is released. Um, and I think he contributes a lot of, credibility to the movie um and i think he also was able to like use his weight because he's like one of the biggest you know people in hollywood particularly at this time like just whatever he wants to do will get done basically yeah um so this he he manages to get uh jim henson's creature shop um who obviously are like behind the muppets and labyrinth and you know all sorts of other live action projects and stuff. Uh, they they uh, are responsible for a lot of the creature designs and puppeteering. Um, and so you have those practical elements that are like super great, um, as well as cutting edge computer generated effects from Industrial Light and Magic, who, you know, are like the Star Wars people. Um, so it's like, I'm, I'm rolling, I'm looking down the credits list uh, and this is just the people working behind the scenes on this thing, but it's absolutely stacked. Uh, it's cinematography from the legendary Dean Cundey, um, who is known for his work with Spielberg, Robert Zemeckis, and John Carpenter. Uh, we got music by film composer David Newman, who now has over a hundred scores to his name. And I think he's maybe the cousin of Randy Newman. Yeah, cousin right. Once or twice removed or something. Um, but then we've got this just ridiculous cast list. The cast is incredible. The thing that Spielberg contrib contributes to it for me is like, scale do you know what i right. mean like everything here is bigger and it's because he's involved and it's clearly because he's just come off jurassic park and everything in jurassic park is fucking gigantic yes absolutely and they haven't cut corners you know like no no and like to be able to pull those strings and i think it was like 20 of those uh muppets style jim henson creature lab creatures mm. that um they were able to pull together in something like six weeks which it's is crazy. just crazy to be able to like to consider the scope of, of that amount of, of creation mm. in such a short amount of time and then to put it into a world that is this this big 
as yeah. well is the other thing. And this like creative in its execution. Right. It's really big. It's bigger than you would expect it to be. Like there are a lot of like wide shots of like a whole street of like rock houses that they built or whatever. Um, but also extremely dense. And so when you're in, you know, uh, when you're on set, when you're seeing a scene play out with characters or whatever, there's like two or three visual jokes in the background of every single scene, you know? Yeah. And like, they may not all be like truly funny, but in terms of being on brand or on the pitch or whatever of what a Flintstones movie should be, I can't imagine... Like, so it's we, pitch perfect, I think. Yeah. Like this movie is not particularly well liked critically. It's not like super well uh, remembered, I think. Um, and at least at the time, like a lot of people were like, this is very insubstantial, which like, right. Sure. You know, like it's the Flintstone. What are you expecting? That's the thing is like a lot of people are approaching this looking for something that it was never going to be. And frankly would be really bizarre if it was, mm. but I, I truly think like a lot of the production is just like spot on perfect as good as you could possibly ask for it to be. Um, yeah. You've got, uh, you've got like perfect. I truly think like really fucking great casting. Um, John Goodman, of course, is Fred Flintstone. Um, there, are, there are conversations with a lot of other funny actors around at the time. Um, John Candy, Jim Belushi, Dan Aykroyd, Bill Murray, Chevy Chase were all considered for the role. According to the Flintstones wiki, the last four of these actors were all deemed too skinny and a fat suit was deemed inappropriate to be used. <laughs> Um, Goodman felt like he was sandbagged into the role, um, because years earlier at the table read for the film, always that, uh, I mentioned before, uh, Steven Spielberg just straight up announced, ladies and gentlemen, I'd like to say something before we start. I've found my Fred Flintstone. <laughs> um, Goodman. This is, this is Spielberg, right? This is when he can say in the 1990s jump and everyone just sort of has to say how high. Right. I was and reading everyone goes John like, Goodman where he was like, oh, I even got really drunk one night and called Steven Spielberg and was like, I can't do this. Mm. And Steven Spielberg was like, you'll be doing the Flintstones movie. Yeah. And he did it. And, you know, he says, it was not a role I was looking forward to doing, but later said that the experience was fun. Um, and, you know, I mean, it's money, whatever, right? Like, yeah. And I feel like Goodman is a guy who... Um, plays the game in Hollywood pretty well and like mm -hmm. doing something like this allows him to go off and do like a you know Coen Brothers thing that's not going to make a huge amount of money or what you know like it's there's a bit of like um quid pro quo happening um apparently Danny DeVito was the original first choice for Barney um but he's like, too gruff right so they offered it to him and he turned down the role because he thought he was too gruff to do the, the no character way. properly yeah he was like Hey, it's not for me. <laughs> like, <laughs> uh, call me when like you've got the penguin available. Dad. Yeah. <laughs> um, so reportedly he suggested Rick Moranis for the role, who <sighs> I think is also fucking great. I mean, like, I don't know the Barney character like the back of my hand. Yeah. But Moranis is such a great, like, presence in a comedy. He's such an everyman. Right. I really appreciate Rick Moranis and as someone who I know so little about because he really kind of like retired from movies sure. not long after this. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, in fact, yeah. How many more just, movies did he have after this? I wonder. I don't know. Um, I think he retired in 1997 um, mm. to, to be a single dad, 
You're right. Um, yeah, his last film roles were Barney Rubble in The Flintstones and the box office flop Big Bully in 1996, um, which I've never heard of. No, and then me neither. That's it, basically. Uh, we also have Elizabeth Perkins, who I think yes. is mainly known as a dramatic actor, um, but she's great in the movie Big. Um, she plays Wilma. We have Rosie O'Donnell, who was just beginning to pop and, of course, went on to become a much bigger star. Um, she had been in A League of Their Own recently. Uh, and then we have the amazing Kyle MacLachlan, um, who is mainly known as a David Lynch collaborator at this point. Like, Twin Peaks is just starting. He was in Blue Velvet. Um, he's fucking great in this movie. We will talk about it. Uh, you've got Halle Berry, who had just broken out. Like, this is very early in Halle Berry's career. Yeah. Um, she was in the 1992 movie Boomerang, um, which I haven't seen. Um, so Halle Berry playing the character of Sharon Stone. Right. So in... let's talk about this, right? You don't even find out at first. Like, they introduce her as Miss Stone. I think Sharon Stone comes as, like, almost a bit of a reveal later on. Yes. Uh, and I'm sure you saw this, too, because we were grinning about it. The role was offered to Sharon Stone. Incredible. And she was forced to pass it up because she had, like, scheduling conflicts. She was filming... Uh, Basic Instinct, which is a much bigger role for her and like a much bigger part of her career. Um, well, so I think it was that, but I also think she she passed it up to film Intersection. Oh, is that right? Yeah. So I think that um, at that time, uh, I just figured because she... it was it was out the same year, but I didn't. Yeah, I didn't really read that anyway. Um, so I was reading up on this. So she went away to film Intersection, mm -hmm. and the reason that I I know about this is that I was looking up the this film as as you said critically not that well received mm. and uh received a bunch of golden raspberry awards which i knew we were going to talk about the razzies i didn't know it was going to be so soon okay Fuck i don't razzies. really know what this means what are the razzies uh it's just i mean like you know uh the the razzies are a uh annual sort of uh I guess like a parody of the Oscars or whatever, but basically it's like we hand out awards to our least favorite movies, our, our movies and performances and stuff that we thought were the worst. And uh, generally it's just like a, uh, a an annoying <laughs> like thing where they're weirdly mean to people. They, they, I think, I feel like they pick on certain types of movies or certain types of movie star appearances and stuff like that, that they deem to be like unacceptable or whatever. But like, it just, there's no real credibility. It's kind of just frustrating, you know. Who decides this? How do they, how, how are the raspberries there's a There's a panel of people. It's a small group of people who think they're better than everybody else, I think. Little meanies. They yeah. feel like, yeah, little, little gross meanies. And it's um, not like I'm like, oh, all of Hollywood should be immune to criticism or whatever. It's just more like, this is like a... It's like weirdly toothless, but also like somehow weirdly specifically barbed towards certain people. Yeah, it feels like piling on in a certain way. So Rosie O'Donnell mm. was uh, given the, the Golden Raspberry for um, Worst Supporting Actress, but she was given it for her um, role in... But she was given it for her supporting actress roles in The Flintstones, but also three other movies. Oh, okay, um, yeah. Where I was like... They I like doing that, where they're just like, we actually just don't like this person. And by the yeah. way, it's almost always a woman. And they're like, yeah. oh, yeah, uh, we don't like you. And so therefore, I guess, we're, what were some movies you were in this year? You know, like, yeah. that comes as an afterthought. And so Sharon Stone mm. won the Worst Actress Award for her participation in the film Intersection. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. Yeah, right. I haven't seen Intersection. I don't actually know really what it is, but... um. 
It is. Uh, it's. It's a shame that she was not able to be in this movie. Although I think the fun fact that they tried to get her and it didn't work out, but the character is still named Sharon Stone, is maybe more fun than if Sharon Stone was in the movie. Love it. And Halle Berry is so good in this. Halle Berry movie, is by the way. great. She to this day, and in fact, like a couple of months ago, was tweeting about this movie. She's like very proud of this iconic role that she portrayed all those years ago. Yeah. Um, she's like, uh, despite being dressed in brown, Sharon Stone was the blueprint or whatever. Like, yeah. you know, which I think is great because obviously there are a lot of stepping stones to Halle Berry becoming like one of the more iconic sort of roles. Oh, sorry. One of the more iconic like movie star presences of the early 2000s. Yeah. Leading um, actresses. Right. Um, and I don't know if this one is necessarily always counted among them, but it's glad to, to think, I, I'm glad to think that she remembers this really fondly, you know? Yeah. Um, didn't, wasn't Sharon Stone in Catwoman as well, by the way? Oh, that's a good question. Because um, Halle Berry's Catwoman was, of course, a, a, a big flop. Um, but I can't remember. I've seen that movie a couple of times. I don't remember if Sharon yeah, Stone's Yeah, I think that 28 it. years later, Sharon Stone starred opposite Halle Berry in, in Catwoman. Fuck that rules. Oh, you're absolutely right. That's fucking cool. I'm going to watch that movie again. When's Catwoman month on the podcast? <laughs> <laughs> uh, and, of course... This movie features the final theatrical film appearance of legendary classic Hollywood star Dame Elizabeth Taylor, who also fucking destroys it in this movie. Is so She's great. incredible. And can you believe that her final ever film role was playing a woman named Pearl Slaghoople, in which she is bound, gagged, and ignored. <laughs> These are plot points. These are things that happen to Elizabeth Taylor. Uh-huh, a couple yeah. of other things that I learned here. Um, there is uh, during this during the filming, the director accidentally stepped on uh, Elizabeth Taylor's feet. Oh my god! And uh, she's you know getting up there in age, and she like let out this big cry, and the director's like, "Oh fuck, I can't believe what you know." And so they had to like halt filming. Off she goes to the medical tent, and she pops back like half an hour, an hour later. And the foot is bandaged and she's like on crutches. Yeah. And everyone's like, well, shit, we can't do the movie. Like we're going to have to suspend production. Yeah. yeah. We're going to have to like rearrange this. And Elizabeth Taylor's like, gotcha. Oh, wait, it was she a prank? Was fine. She's fine. Yeah. Oh, that's hilarious. She pranked him. That's yeah. really good. Can we, okay. Before we even, before we even talk any more about, there is a lot of foot stuff going on in this oh, movie. Oh, yeah, this is the other thing, right? Yeah. This movie could not be made in the year 2022 without being considered erotica. Yeah, it's truly... it's It's got the very Tarantino sort of gaze of, like, feet are coming up in every second scene. It's truly bizarre. Like, that stands out in a way that you cannot ignore, even on one viewing. So the... Uh, it, Entire set was a glass-free zone because everyone was filming barefoot. Oh, of course, that makes sense. So glass sense. was banned from the set. Um, they had to ship in special uh, dirt for them to use. There's like one scene where they, um, much like in the Flintstones cartoons, obviously the uh, the the car is driven by the the um, Fred's two feet, um, as they say in the theme song. Uh, and in order to hit the brakes, you just like slam your feet into the dirt, right? So, in the director's commentary, they were talking, he was talking about how they had to ship in, like, special dirt that had been, like, filtered down to remove any impurities or whatever, so that they could do that one scene. And obviously, it still wasn't John Goodman's feet. They had, like, a foot double come in and do that. <laughs> I was like, that's, like, a day of production is working on that one shot. To get the foot shot. Mm-hmm. But there are plenty of other foot movie. shots. Yeah, totally. Yeah. 
Uh, yeah. I mean, look, I think uh, maybe we should start running down the whole plot and, you know, talking about the things that pop up as they do. Uh, and maybe, unfortunately, I feel like this is probably time where we have to uh, say farewell to the free listeners. Um, I hope you have enjoyed this uh, little, uh, you know, wetting your beak. Uh <laughs> Or whatever. Yeah, you addict a bird beak. Right, there are birds. You don't know this yet. If you didn't watch there the movie. Freaky bird creatures. There's a lot of bird stuff. Yeah, look, uh, uh, pterodactyl bird situations. Uh, if you've enjoyed this, please head over to the Bachelor of Hearts Patreon. Um, uh, Patreon.com slash BOHpod. And you can hear the rest of this episode and our next episode about the Flintstones in Viva Rock Vegas, as well as some other stuff about this show called The Bachelor, which, I don't know, you might enjoy. Um, yeah, it's uh, we don't know that. We can't say. Right. Um, but uh, thank you so much for listening up until now, and uh, and please remember to rate, review, and subscribe, and share it with your friends. Uh, put a thumbs up in the comments, uh, wherever. <laughs> put a thumbs up in the comments, put folks. A little rock. Is there's, a, there's a caveman emoji, right? Probably. I think so. Anyway, okay. Thank you again. We love you very much. Yabba dabba, goodbye. Yabba dabba da. Good rock. Rock. Stone. Rocks. Boulder. Rock. Stone. Stone. Oh, my life, I waited for years. Hearing your voice, music to my ears. From the first moment you entered my life, just one hope would be happening. Wilma.